Now, tonight's talk is called uh, The Art of Memory. And I'd like to begin just by reviewing the title a little bit, but we'll kind of work backwards and just start with the word memory. And I'm going to start by posing a question to you all. Who here, if you would show your hand, please, has a good memory? Oh, okay, I saw one. I have, to, I have to remember now who to quiz later on. No, I won't, I won't. Uh, but yeah, I usually start by posing this question, and I typically get very few hands up. Sometimes if I do it for groups of kids, like I did a lecture, not this one, but a different one a few weeks ago, to a couple groups of kids going through confirmation, and now back in Illinois, they're like third and fourth graders, and I asked that question about memory, and every one of them raised their hand. I've got a good memory, but none of their parents did, so that's weird. <laughs> but I will say that in a way, in a more than one sense, it's really kind of a trick question. Because first, when I say a uh, memory, memory is a very complex thing. It's more than just one thing. There's all different kinds of memories that I'm sure that you're aware of. Like, you're probably aware of the difference between short-term memory, what you can kind of hold in mind at one time, and long-term memory, what you might hold for years or the rest of your life. We can talk about uh, retrospective memory versus prospective memory. Retrospective memory is what you remember from the past. Prospective is what you're trying to remember in the future. Like, I got to remember to do this tomorrow, to run this errand, to get this at the store. So that aspect of memory. We can talk about uh, visual and verbal memory. Verbal memory, your ability to memorize things in terms of words and language. Visual memory, your ability to memorize shapes, images, designs, things like that. And there's others. Semantic or declarative memory, what you can remember like from reading a text or reading a list versus experiential memory, what you remember because it, something happened to you in your own life. So there's all different kinds of memory. And it's very, very possible, if you think about your own memory capacities, that you may be strong in some of those areas and weaker in others. You know, we all have our own patterns there. But there's another deeper sense uh, related to the, the talk tonight, why I call this a trick question, because I really don't think that for the vast majority of us, memory is something that we just have. It's either good or it's either bad. It's actually very, very malleable, very, very changeable and improvable for most people. So you might be surprised to know what you can do with your memory if you learn a little bit about the previous word, the art of memory. And the art of memory, it's short for the word artificial, so it implies something that's, that's man-made. It, it's a skill. There are skills that can be involved in improving your memory. And these techniques have quite actually a Christian, a Catholic and a Christian heritage that I'll highlight as we go through the talk today. But they go all the way back uh, to about five, at least five centuries BC to ancient Greeks and later uh, to the Romans. And even back in that time, 2,500 years ago, they made a crucial distinction between what they called natural memory, what you just kind of remember on your own, and the good doctor was talking about our external and internal senses, memory being this internal sense that human beings have. And in some ways, we share that with some animals. They can remember particular things too. But humans also have these uniquely intellectual abilities. You know, we can form concepts, we can talk to each other, we can form words and all that. And we have the ability to use our higher reasoning thinking powers to reach back in there and change the way we remember things. So you can really transform uh, your ability to remember if you know some of these special techniques and if you find that they, that they work for you. So I want to keep that in mind. Now, I mentioned there's a, a Christian history to this, and there is. And I don't know about you, but when I think of Christianity and memorization, 
probably for me, the first thing that comes to my head is some of our Protestant evangelical brothers and sisters that can cite scripture chapter and verse, right? You know, they'll, they'll give it to you, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. And the methods like this, they can be used for that. They can be used for verbatim, a reproduction of particular texts or words or poems or prayers. Uh, but even the ancients made a distinction between what they called memory for words, which is that verbatim recall, and memory for things. And the things are fundamental ideas or concepts that you might then reformulate into your own words. So memory for things, kind of verbatim repetition, a memory for words, verbatim repetition, memory for things, key concepts and ideas. And as we go through the talk, I'll give you lots of examples of what I, what I mean by that. So that'll be our main focus today, this, I, the uh, memory of things. And let me make this clear with a, a little story that comes from St. Augustine, one of our early church fathers. He said, let's say you meet a person, you're gonna try to introduce them to the, to the faith. He said, even if you had memorized the entire Bible uh, uh, word for word, you're not going to stand there and start reciting it to the person, you know? He said, you're going to tell them some of the highlights. You're going to tell them about Jesus Christ. You might tell them about the Trinity and some of the, about the Catholic Church and, or, and, and, and so forth, you know? So you're going to tell them the key concepts and then hope that they go read the material itself or then later have a discussion with you in more depth or maybe uh, go to Mass and, and hear the Bible there. So this idea that it's very important to learn and be able to memorize key fundamental concepts of your faith has a long history that goes at least back uh, to Augustine. All right, so there's just a brief look there at the, the title, The Art of Memory. Now, through the rest of this talk, I want to cover uh, mainly three things, or as they say in Ireland, three things. Adam <laughs> can probably verify that. <laughs> but, but here are the main three things. Uh, first, I'm going to give you a little bit of background into how I happen to get into these particular memory techniques. So my own history here as a, as a Christian and as, as a psychologist. Then the second part, I want to give you a mini history of where these methods came from. From the ancient Greeks, through the Romans, through Christian figures. And then the third part, I don't want to just talk about these methods, I want to do it. I want to do a demonstration that we can all be involved in and we'll see how it works for us, right? And then I'll wrap things up and conclude, and then I'll take your, your questions, all right? So with that, okay, now what was that first thing? Um, oh yeah. All right, now I'm gonna take you back. You're gonna go about 500 miles northeast of here to my hometown, Springfield, Illinois, the land of Lincoln, where Abraham Lincoln is our favorite son. He was, that's where he lived when he was, uh, before he became president. And half the things in town are named after him, our airport, our libraries, and so forth. But I'm going to take you back to 1978 to the Lincoln Library when they're having their annual book sale. And they're going to sell thousands of books that people have donated. They're also going to sell books that have been sitting on the shelves and they're collecting dust because nobody reads them anymore, right? Well, I say back in 1978, bless you, it was the best quarter I ever spent. Undoubtedly, the best quarter I ever spent because I saw this little book sitting there called Your Memory, Speedway to Success in Earning, Learning, and Living, featuring the Automagic Method by O.W. Bill Hayes. Now that book was written in 1958, but by 20 years later, nobody was reading it, and the library wanted to get rid of it, and they're willing to give it to me for a quarter, right? So anyway, so reading that little, simple little book, it introduced me to this memory technique, very similar to what we're gonna demonstrate today, 
And I found it was amazingly powerful for me. Now, I didn't give the history of these techniques. It's just, here's how you do it. And it worked so well for me that as I went through school, as I went through my college courses and all the way through my doctorate, whenever I had to do any memorization of academic material in any class whatsoever, it was just a piece of cake. Uh, in fact, uh, later when I went for my uh, psychology licensing exam, there's a huge national test you have to take, 200 items and virtually anything in the field there is an, an open game. They have developed quite an industry to prepare you for it. You can go take these seminars, you can buy all these books. And, and I didn't go to any seminars, but I bought the books and used these methods. And I was able to obtain the highest score in the state and set my school record the year I took that. So for me, I just knew that personally, these were very, very uh, powerful and effective. But before the doctor, as I moved along there, I'd been using these for some years, and I was pursuing a, a master's degree in general psychology. Not clinical psychology where you study like mental disorders, but just general, and I focused on like normal human development, including how like kids and adolescents uh, think and learn. And I thought, for my thesis, I want to do something with these memory methods and see what the actual science out there in the fields of psychology and education, have they found this stuff is, in, is, is useful for kids or not? So I did a master's thesis called, uh, in 1990, called Memory uh, Strategy Instruction in the Internalization of Higher Psychological Processes in Adolescence. And I think the fact that I can remember that 32 years later, that title shows these probably, they might have something to them. No, but, but anyway, in there, I examined the research that was done on kids' natural memory abilities and the techniques they developed on their own in a body of research that looked at what happens with kids of different ages when you teach them these specialized memory techniques that have been around for thousands of years, but, but most people don't know them. What does that do? Well, I remember in some of the studies, and one was a study of the acquisition of Spanish vocabulary words. And they found that first and second graders trained just for a few hours in these memory techniques could outperform fifth and sixth graders who were not taught the techniques. In another experiment, using geographical facts, fifth and sixth graders taught the techniques outperformed high school uh, juniors and seniors who were not. Oftentimes, if you had same age kids, like fifth or sixth graders, and half are taught and half aren't, often the kids that were taught the memory methods had twice the recall for things like vocabulary, foreign language vocabulary, ge geography facts, history facts, biology facts, and so on. So, so they really can be can be quite uh, powerful. Now, yeah, uh, um, when I was in my 30s, I, I went back for a doctoral degree in clinical psychology, and I focused on uh, neuropsychology, brain-behavior relationships. And I did a practicum and internship and dissertation at the Southern Illinois University School of Medicine at their Alzheimer's Center, and part of their neurology clinic. But, so I worked with people with uh, Alzheimer's disease, other kinds of brain damage. Uh, we also did research on just like normal elderly volunteers who would come in. So we'd, you know, and we'd test their memories, we'd test their thinking abilities. So we'd know like, like a 70-year-old or an 80-year-old or an 85-year-old, how do they typically do in terms of memory performance? So if someone is brought in that age and their family thinks they might have Alzheimer's, we know the difference. We know how different they are from most people their age, so it was very, very fascinating stuff there. So I was involved mostly in the uh, testing of people's memories and, and other thinking abilities. But one case in particular gave me a chance to practice this memory art. And this was, was a very fascinating case. Remember, this was a 45-year-old gentleman. 
I remember at the time thinking, boy, he's kind of getting up there. But, <laughs> but 45 is long in my own rearview mirror. I don't think that anymore. But he was a very bright man. He, he had worked as an attorney, but he was considered uh, disabled from any employment. And, and I did on the side. I worked 32 years doing disability for social security disability, mental and physical, and he was, he was disabled. But now, even at this, at this time, I tested the man with all kinds of tests. And he had an IQ of 125, which is the top 5%. It used to always be considered about the average for people who end up getting a doctorate, a PhD or an MD. So it's pretty, you know, it's the 95th percentile, very intelligent man. And that's where his was, even after he had this particular brain issue I'm going to tell you about. Okay, but why couldn't he work? Well, uh, yeah, let me tell you why. Remember I talked about verbal and visual memory as two different kinds of memory? Well, one of the ways we would test verbal memory would be to give research subjects or patients a list of 15 words and just read them to them one at a time. And then when we're done, we would say, when I'm finished with this list, I'd like you to repeat back to me as many as you can. So I'm sitting across and I'd say, okay, dog, table, book, you know, so on, okay? And, and go all the way to the 15 and then ask them to repeat it. Now, we talked about short-term versus long-term memory. Anyone aware of how many pieces of information most of us can hold in our short-term memory? Like repeating something back to someone? Uh, usually seven, yes. For, for the average person, it's seven. Sometimes they use a rule of thumb of seven plus or minus two, because some of us are weaker and stronger uh, than others. So. If you go between five and nine digits, that's where most people lie. And in fact, part of the reason that we have seven-digit phone numbers without the area code is because the research showed that most people, if we pay attention and focus, we can, we can get those seven down. Well, okay, so here's this man with 125 IQ, a former attorney who can't work. I give him uh, these words, and the first time he gives me back uh, nine words, which is, which is normal, and a little bit above normal, actually fairly good. But what we do with this particular test, we then repeat it eight times. Eight times I read the words one by one, and then they give them back. And then what happens with most people, you know, even folks getting up there in the years, the numbers pick up, it's a learning curve, they get more and more. And by the time we've done it eight times, you know, some people get all 15, a lot of people get 12, 13, 14, but this man could never get past 11, okay? So it's pretty, pretty weak there, especially for a very bright man. But here's where it was really telling. After we do this, about a half an hour later, I say, hey, you remember we did that uh, word list all those times about a half an hour ago? Can you tell me those words now? How many of those can you remember now? Now, when you do this with most people who don't have a, a brain issue, they will give you almost all the words because they did it eight times. So they really had a chance to move from short-term memory to long-term, right? Well, this guy, after half an hour, remember the most he worked up to was 11 after eight tries. After half an hour, he gave me zero words back, zero. And I like to say that was the second worst performance I ever saw. So how could that be the second worst? He did remember that we did some kind of a word test. Another gentleman I tested didn't even remember that we had done that. But obviously very, very profoundly uh, impaired. Now, right, we also gave him other formal tests of verbal and visual memory visual for things like shapes, designs, color, patterns, and uh, things like that. And his visual memory was actually normal. In fact, it was above normal. It was like in keeping with his IQ, it was very strong. 
visual memory. So what's going on with this guy? And at first we didn't know the complete history, so he's kind of a mystery. Well, here is the story. He had had an uncontrollable case of epilepsy or seizure disorder, which none of the medicines or other approaches at the time could control. So he had this uh, surgery where they went into the left side of his temporal lobe and took out some of this tissue in an area called the, the, the structure called the hippocampus, okay? And this hippocampus is crucial to the formation, holding on of new memories, moving them from short term to long term. In fact, with most dementias, it's affecting the hippocampus on both sides. But on this man, it was surgical, so it was just one side. Well, for the vast majority of us, the left hemisphere of the brain uh, is more dominant for verbal tasks, and the right is more dominant for visual tasks. Now, even for left-handers, do we have any left-handers here? Well, I, I'm one, too. Even most of us do have that same lateralization that way. And, and it's kind of an aside, but there's actually a medical test that can be done to, to show that. It's very fascinating. It's done with a neuropsychologist and an anesthesiologist. A person flat, lies flat on a, a, a table. They have both arms standing up. Anesthesiologist runs a catheter up from the groin into the carotid artery, and they can selectively temporarily shut down one half of the brain at the time. So how do you know? When the left half of the brain is shut down, the left half also controls the right motor movement. So the left half is shut up, boom, this arm drops. Then the neuropsychologist jumps in and does these little ask questions and does tests. You know, then they only have a few minutes, and then, it's the, then they do the opposite, and you, you test, you can find out, you know, where the verbal uh, dominance is, it's a pretty fascinating thing. But anyway, okay, so this man, he has severe structural damage on the left, but the right is very, very good. So my mentor at the time knew I was into these memory techniques, he said, why don't you try these on this guy? What do you think that would do? I said, well, I don't know, it'll be pretty interesting to find out. So I did work with this man using virtually exactly the same technique I'm gonna demonstrate with you in a little bit. And let's see, how'd he do? Uh, yeah, his first trial, yeah, he was, let me think here. Yeah, he was, he was nine words. He worked up to 11 after only three trials. It took him eight last time, but, but he got tired after three times. He didn't wanna do it anymore. So we didn't get the full eight practices and we only got three in. Well, then a half an hour later, hey, remember that test we did? Can you give me those words now? And this time, instead of getting zero, he recalled nine of the 11. So for this man, uh, it made a huge difference because that's part of why I'm calling this an art of memory, saying that it can transform memory tasks. He was able to use his visual capacities to compensate for that verbal weakness by transforming the, the words into images, which is what we'll do in our demonstration in a little bit. So I knew then this can be powerful even for some people with certain kinds of brain damage or learning disabilities. Now unfortunately it's not going to work with most people with dementia because they have both sides of the brain are usually already impaired. But for people without dementia, uh, it, it, works for, it works for a lot of folks. I knew it was very powerful. Now, okay, so the years went by and I did, I did college teaching part-time on the side. I usually did developmental psychology courses, lifespan, they called womb to tomb, you know, from birth until death and dying issues. I did the psychology of adolescence a lot, did psychology of aging, focusing on that part of life. And I, each course, one night we talked about memory, so I always really looked forward to that. But there's a few different ways I use the memory techniques with my students. First, for any class, I typically had maybe 30 or 40 students. The first night of class is I took role I'd pay close attention to who is who. 
Then when I come in for the second night of class, I just sit on top of the desk without any notes, and I just call a roll from my head. And the students were like, what's going on here? Because you know, I hadn't told them yet anything about this memory stuff. But it was effective. It got people's attention. They knew I knew who they were. And if I'd see somebody out at a restaurant and they happened to be on my waiter, I'm a hi, Chuck. How are you doing? They, all, they always liked that. But, but as I went through, I really wanted to show them the real power of these techniques. So this was, the, I think, the, the, maybe the most dramatic method I thought of to demonstrate it to them for what I could do with the technique. I said, OK, remember, seven digits is our typical recall. I said, let's generate a, a random number that's 50 digits long. So I say, come on, everybody, get out pencil, paper, let's write these down, call out numbers. And the people go, eight, four, six, and we're writing it all down. You know? And I keep track. And once we had 50 digit string, I'd say, OK, let's stop now. And I'd say, now let's take a couple of minutes and memorize this number. And undoubtedly, I'd get moans and groans. You know? but, but we would do it. And then three or four minutes later, I'd say, OK, uh, flip over your papers. Let's see how we did. So I'd go back to the blackboard, which dates me. It was one of those old chalk blackboards. <laughs> but I'd go back to the blackboard and say, OK, what was our number? And people, they can't see it. So they're calling it out. They're calling the numbers. And typically, I'd get maybe 11, 12, 13, and then the room goes completely silent. Then I would go up to the board, and I would finish the number string. Then I'd come and face away from the board and tell them, now flip over your papers. I'm saying, tell me how I do. And I start going, you know, four, nine, one. And they go, oh, no, no, Dr. Vos, you're getting every one of those wrong. I said, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. I forgot to tell you. I'm reading the digit uh, string backwards now. <laughs> I'm going from this side of the board to that side of the board. And then the last thing I thought of to do to put kind of the sprinkles on top of the icing, I said, somebody call out a number between 1 and 50. You know, somebody might say, 29. And I go, 7. They said, what do you mean? I said, the 29th digit is a 7. And then I would go, then I would go and show them that it was. Now, I, I told this people before, they said, that sounds like a magic trick. And you know, there actually are people, like in Las Vegas and stuff, that do memory stuff, but it has a trick element to it. But now, this is not a trick. This is just, just using transforming the memory task, because the students were memorizing an absolutely meaningless, ridiculously long number. But that's not what I was doing. I was using two different memory techniques. The first one transforms any digits, any numbers, into consonant sounds that you can then build words out of. So I'll give you just a quick rundown of this. Uh, one becomes a T or a D, like there's a one downstroke. Two becomes an N, like two motions. Three becomes an M. Four is an R. The last letter in the, the word four is an R. Five is an L. The Roman numeral for 50 is an L. And it takes you a while to learn this code, but once you do, it's stable. Six is like a, a J. It kind of looks like a flipped around J or a ch sound. Uh, seven is a K. It kind of looks like a K flipped around or a G, a hard sound like that. Eight is an F or a V. Think like a figure eight. Uh, nine, a P or a B sound. And then zero was like a, a S or a Z. So as we went through these numbers, like I come across, you know, uh, three, five. I'm going M, L, a mule. Oh, OK, I'm memorizing a mule, not a meaningless 3-5. So that's one element. I memorized 25 words, not 50 digits. And the key component of this technique is what I'm going to show in our demonstration. I was using a special system of locations that I knew better than the back of my own hand. So as I transformed those numbers into, into words, I was putting each one of those in a particular place that I knew by number which place was which, which was the 14th, which was the 18th, right? 
So when it comes time for me to do this trick, I'm just going, walking through my little memory house. And I'm seeing, oh, there's a mule. Oh, there's a nun. It must have been 2-2. Two, two. You know, I'm going through and deciphering all these codes. And because I know where they are, that's how I can say the 29th digit is this or the 44th digit is that, because it locks everything. These methods lock everything in their exact order. You know? So they can be very, very powerful. So they can you know, uh, transform our memories. And I did forget to say, too, the oldest book we have on memory says, and it's from about 80-some 80, 80 BC, says these techniques are designed to make a good memory better and a bad memory not so bad. So there should be, so there should be hope for just about everybody. But, but they'll be more effective for some people than, than for others. But then at one point I thought, boy, sometimes I'm doing this two nights in a row back to back. I'm getting a little bit older. Someday I'm going to mess up. I want to do something that will show the students what they can do. So I came up with a technique where I showed them how to memorize 20 words. And usually after this demonstration, more than half the students got all 20. But then I revealed to them how these words represented actual vocabulary words that we had covered in the course and that would be on the next test, you know, so that I had some, some impetus for them. All right, so anyway, I'm going to finish up with my story here. Uh, so I've used these techniques, you know, since I was a teenager when I was teaching, I always taught my students uh, how to do it. Uh, in, let's see, I was 43 years old. I had gone back to school working full time when we had young kids in the household. I was teaching on the side. I was just kind of really, really working too much. And I, took, I said, I'm going to take some time off from teaching. I had more time for leisure. Well, next thing I knew, I found myself uh, reading St. Thomas Aquinas for the first time. And, and though I'd been raised Catholic, in my late teens, I came across some of the wrong philosophers and considered myself an atheist for about 25 years. All this time I was teaching, all the time we had our, our kids. And then I read St. Thomas Aquinas, and I'm like, oh boy. These airtight arguments of the atheists had been answered by St. Thomas Aquinas more than 700 years ago. And he's borrowing from folks who lived long before him. So anyway, at that point, I came back to the church. But then I remembered, as I learned about these memory techniques, their history, that St. Thomas Aquinas was actually one of the key figures. One of the major secular historians of these methods said if, if Simonides, this ancient Greek, was the inventor of the techniques and Cicero was its teacher, St. Thomas Aquinas was the patron saint of these memory techniques. So anyway, to make a long story short, when I came back to the church I realized I had never seen anything in Catholic books mentioning Thomas's role as a memory master. So I proposed this idea to one of the Catholic publishers I really enjoyed, Sophia Institute Press, and we came up with a book called Memorize the Faith that shows how exactly to apply this technique to different elements of the faith, to learn the, the virtues of the rosary mysteries, the seven deadly sins, the holy days of obligation, all the books of the Bible, and more and more and more, okay? So, part of my story. So that kind of ends my story up to this point. Now I need to give you a brief mini history of the technique. Starts with Simonides about 500 or so BC, an ancient Greek orator. He was such a fluent orator they called him uh, the honey-tongued orator. And he decides he's going to give this oration. He, oh, he's invited by a wealthy man named Scopus to give this talk. Uh, and at some point during his talk, uh, Simonides thanks Scopus, and he dedicates the talk to the twin gods Castor and Pollux, these ancient Greek gods. He's giving an oration on a boxer. They had some like, special patron of, of boxers. So at some point later, Scopus calls Simonides aside and said, hey, Simonides, I noticed that you dedicated the talk to me and, and to Castor and Pollux. He said, so I will pay you half of your fee, and you can get the other half from Castor and Pollux. 
It'd be like if I thank God in the Alcuin Institute for bringing me here, and, and the Alcuin Institute said, hey, Dr. Vost, you know, well, we flew you out here, God can fly you back, since you gave him credit too. <laughs> you know, but they wouldn't do something so ungracious. But Scopus did this to Simonides. But here's how the story goes, the legend, the legend goes. Okay, legend goes that while Simonides returned to talk, he was told that two young men needed him for an emergency. So he leaves the room. He sees these two young men running down the street and he tries to chase them and catch them. They lead him on this wild goose chase. While he's gone, there's a tremor, the roof of the building collapses and kills everyone inside. They are so crushed that not even the authorities or their own family can know who's who. But Simonides realizes from his perspective as the speaker that he, he, he could say who was where. Well, you know, Empodocles Smith was sitting right there. Socrates Jones was next to him, and he could work his way around the room. So give me just a second or two here in case we have a roof collapse. No, I don't, no, I don't think we're going to have that. But that is how the story goes. So as the legend goes, who were those two men that called him away? Castor and Pollux, right? And they were rewarding him by saving his life and, incidentally, by leading him to the discovery of this art of memory. Because it had two key components. The power of what comes into our visual sense and the power of orderly arrangement. So this is the birth of what was called the art of memory, the artificial memory that builds upon our natural memory abilities. Because Simonides realized you don't have to just see things and arrange it in order. You can simply imagine it. You can use your imagination to set up these sequences, to form these images that will help you remember whatever you want to remember. So then after Simonides, it moved on through the Latin world, through, largely through the writings of Marcus Tullius Cicero in the first century uh, BC. It was passed on to the great Catholic church fathers, mostly through Cicero because they were Latin, Latin speaking, the ones in the, the West. So people like, um, Oh, oh, and it became known as the method of, of loci, or loci, for locations. The word in Greek was, for locations was topoi. And they say this may still have carry on in even our current language because it was first used to, by public speakers to help them organize their talks. And what do we talk, what do we call the different areas of a talk, different topics? Ties also into the, to the topoi. So anyway, but it came down to the West as loci, or locations. We know that uh, St. Augustine, was well aware of these. He was a student of Cicero. Uh, Augustine said that, in, in a way, the human memory, understanding, and will uh, parallel the, the Holy Trinity, in a way. Uh, we know that St. Jerome twice referenced this oldest book that we have on memory. It's called the Ad Herennium. It just means to some guy named Herennius. And we don't even know for sure who wrote it, though for centuries it was attributed to Cicero. But anyway, Jerome, Jerome was well aware of that. Then we move through some later centuries after the fall of Rome, and it's kind of a, you know, they call it the Dark Ages, but it seems that some of this memory knowledge was lost. If I can move along to, I think, around the year 800 or so, to the great blessed Alcuin himself. One of his works was a treatise on rhetoric or public speaking and the virtues. And just a little snippet, he's there, and he was a great advisor to Charlemagne, Saint, uh, Charles the Great, set up there in France. And Alcuin's going to bring you know, learning back into the, to the world, to the Western world, to Europe, to Christendom. Christendom. And uh, Charlemagne uh, says, okay, we've talked about these different parts or aspects of public speaking or rhetoric. He says, now tell me what you have to say about memory, which I deem the most noble aspect of rhetoric. 
And then Alcuin says, well, of course, I start with the words of Marcus Tullius Cicero, that memory is the treasure house of all things. And if it is not the custodian of your thoughts of things and thoughts, all other parts of, of rhetoric go to naught without it. So, so we know that he was quite aware that Cicero had talked about memory. But then Charlemagne says, yeah, but what about, give me some particular precepts, give me some tips. What can I do to improve my memory? And then basically Alcuin says, well, alas, uh, there aren't particular precepts. He said, uh, he said I recommend that you uh, practice memorizing, that you uh, practice writing, that you apply yourself to study, and above all, to avoid drunkenness, because drunkenness <laughs> is very detrimental to studies. And this is, this is the, the true story there. And, and admittedly, that is great, remains great advice to this day. Not that you can't have a little, drink to the point that, of, of mirth, but, but not to that. But anyway, but the point is, Alcuin, extremely learned man. We knew he knew of some of Cicero's writings, of some of the other uh, Latin ancients, but it appears that at that point in time, he did not have access to this ad herenium that a lot of this memory tradition came from. Well, now we jump a few hundred years to the future to uh, St. Albert the Great. Anyone ever come across Albert the Great? The patron saint of scientists, the teacher of St. Thomas Aquinas, they called him the great while he was still alive because his knowledge was so encyclopedic. Well, I need to cut to the chase so I can do the demo. But, but Albert does two important things. He takes an ancient literature on memory improvement, this ad herenium book, and he does a comment on it line by line. I mean, he goes over it with a fine tooth comb. He also was well versed in a tradition that came from Aristotle on the nature of human memory, just how does human memory work? And he shows the way these two mesh together. He also takes the memory training from the realm of rhetoric or public speaking and moves it to the virtues. He said memory is actually a part of the virtue of prudence or practical wisdom. He said you need three things to be uh, practically wise, memory, understanding, and foresight. He says because to achieve virtuous goals in the future using foresight, you need to uh, assess your current situation with your powers of understanding and then be guided by the lessons you've learned in the past. And that's what's stored in your memory. So he said, in some ways, memory is the most important part of prudence. He said, because time always goes from now into the future, it doesn't run, run backwards there. So Albert endorsed these particular memory techniques. And then his student, St. Thomas Aquinas. I sometimes think of Albert's brain and mind like a great searchlight. He wants to know everything. Well, Thomas is pretty broad, too. But I often think of him also as a laser beam. When he latches a hold of something, boy, does he penetrate deep. And Thomas did latch into these memory techniques. It's not well known. The, the main place he does is right in the middle of his Summa Theologica. If anybody has ever, well, probably some of you have seen that, read that. There's a hardcover Latin English version that shipping weight is over 30 pounds <laughs> in eight, eight volumes. But anyway, right in the middle, the second part, the second part, the 49th question, the first article is called Whether Memory is a Part of Prudence. And that's where Thomas talks about these techniques. And I'm going to give you two, them to you in a nutshell, then we're going to do it. He says, there's four things you need to perfect your memory. Now, I'm going to say two of these you know already. You have to focus. You have to concentrate when you want to memorize something, right? Another thing, you need to rehearse it or repeat it. We all know this from studying, right? Don't you drill? You, you do it more than once. So yeah, so that still applies with these special techniques. But then the two special things. He says, first, if you're trying to memorize something, you need to form some kind of, he calls it, unwanted or unusual strange image. You make a mental image of it, something you can picture, even if it's an abstract or spiritual concept. So this idea of forming visual images. And then the fourth, you have a concentration and repetition, 
the images, is you need an orderly arrangement. You need an organized scheme for laying things out in order. There was another Catholic theologian that was into these memory techniques, Hugh of St. Victor. He said, uh, confusion is the mother of forgetfulness. So organization is kind of the opposite of confusion. And another saying I forgot to say was, uh, repetition is the mother of memory. So we've long known that these things are important. But okay, those are the four things. And let's, let's do it and show you what I'm talking about. Okay, we're gonna go back to Springfield again. I'm gonna invite you to my house. It's kind of a sprawling ranch house nestled between mature maples and oaks. You come up to my front door, you ring my doorbell, the door opens, you see a blinding light and you hear a resounding crash. So you think to yourself, what kind of house does this guy have? But you're brave, but that's number one, the front door, number one, the light and the crash. Do we have that? Can you imagine it? Number two, you step in to my doormat and you think you hear something, and you realize what you're hearing is cursing and cussing. And I used to say cussing like a sailor until I realized I probably had some naval people in the audience. <laughs> then I would say cussing like a railroader because my father-in-law was a railroader, but there might be railroad people. But he's just cussing. We won't say it like anything. <laughs> but the mat is cussing. In fact, it has lips, and you kind of try to muffle it. Can you picture that? This bizarre mat is cursing at you at number two location. Number three, you're in my entranceway still. There's a glass panel next to the front door. You look out into the yard, and you say, oh my gosh, that's probably the most beautiful day I've ever seen. What a glorious day that is out there. Can you picture that? Through that glass panel out in my yard. Number four, up here on this wall in my house is a portrait of your parents. You go, what is Dr. Vos doing with mom and dad in his foyer? I didn't realize they were world renowned. Maybe they are. But there they are. There's mom and dad, a number fourth location. Number five, here we're on this side of the foyer and there is a big gun rack with rifles here on the fifth location and it's got a very big padlock on it. Okay, so the gun rack with padlocked is number five. Number six, we're back to the center of the foyer and this is a tougher one so please pay attention. There is an adult here and he's acting very secretive. He's like trying to hide his face with his jacket or something. So number six is the secretive adult in the center of the foyer. Number seven is easy. You look over ahead, there's a chandelier, and it's made out of solid steel. And what's weird about it is it's nothing but steel. There's no glass, just pure solid steel chandelier for number seven. Do we have that? Number eight, now we're on this side of the foyer, just three more to go. There's a, a mirror here on the wall. And what do you see when you look into that? We know this house is kind of strange, but you do see your own face, but it's distorted like one of those circus uh, carnival mirrors, you know, that makes you real huge or real, real thin. So you have this false distorted image in that mirror. Now we're almost done. Under the mirror is a little cushioned bench. And who should be sitting there but your next door neighbor's wife? Now, does your next door neighbor not have a wife? Or maybe you don't even have a next door neighbor? I'm not sure how spread apart you are here. But that's okay, just imagine it. You don't have to have one. But there's your next door neighbor's wife, number nine. Number 10, you open up these little drawers in the bench. And what pops out? Once a lady in the audience says, well, there's your next door neighbor's husband. Well, no, not necessarily, unless he's inside these gift wrap boxes, these presents, because that's what's in number 10, the gift wrap presents. Now, repetition is the mother of memory, right? And I think I claim these memory techniques will help you learn things in their exact order. So let's repeat this one more time backwards. All right, number 10, we had the little the drawers, and what was in there? Very, very good. Oh, yeah, call them out if you got them. Number nine, the cushion bench. Ah, wonderful. Number eight, I'm here. Uh, yes, yes. All steel. Number six. Secret. That's right. Number five. 
block number here we have here yeah mom and dad are here and then beautiful day and then this this honoring thing and then what was number one back at the door the light and the crash okay now you know, I'm from Central Illinois, and it's a true story. When I was little and I said something that didn't make a whole lot of sense, my mom would say, now, what does that have to do with the price of beans? You know, soybeans is what she had in mind. You know, so what did that have to do with, with, with anything? Well, you know, okay, what did we actually memorize here? Now, let's think back. Anyone know the Ten Commandments? And I'm giving them here as they're laid out in the uh, Catholic Catechism. Some different Christian denominations do them a little bit differently. I'm doing the, our Catholic format. Well, first commandment is to, you know, honor God alone with all that you are and not false gods, not false idols. So who said fiat lux, let there be light, is God, of course. So the light is just our image for God. And what was that crash? Well, that's the falling idols. So that's just our reminder for the first commandment. Now, what do you think the second commandment might be? Do not take the Lord's name in vain. The glorious day. Keep holy the Sabbath or the Lord's day. Who should we honor? Thou shalt not. This is a tough one. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not. Here's the toughest one. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Then the easy ones. Cover your neighbor's not cover your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's goods. Okay. So if you got that, everybody now knows the Ten Commandments in their exact order. So that's just a basic principle of how this method works. And I need to shut down here in a minute, but I need to let you know, once you learn a location system like this, like in my book, Memories of the Faith, we go through a whole house that has the foyer, living room, and other rooms that take you through 60 places. Once you have that location system, it is like a notepad in your head. You can use it for absolutely anything. You can use it for your grocery list tomorrow. Okay, I open the front door and a big banana punches me in the nose. And then I step in and I trip over a sack of potatoes, you know. You know, you can use absolutely anything. But now remember, repetition is the mother of memory. You don't necessarily need the same grocery list each week, do you? So if you don't bother to rehearse that, it's gone. You use it again next week for entirely uh, new stuff. But things that are worth remembering, like the Ten Commandments, you know, like other facts of the faith, you rehearse them from time to time and you'll always have them. And these techniques can be used for, for almost anything. I, I use them for you know, all kinds of academic subject matters. Tons of people have written me emails and book reviews and stuff, usually for everything. I know three people who use it to help pass their bar exams in, in law. I know people have used it to help them study uh, uh, Latin. There was actually an economics journal that referenced Memorize the Faith because they were showing economics students how to remember economic and finance principles using these methods because they apply to anything. Now myself, I use them primarily for the original reason they were invented, to help public speakers. You know, so I do all my talks without notes, whatever I'm talking about, but I'm not memorizing them word for word. I'm not doing it verbatim. I'm mentally walking through the house. Okay, I'm gonna talk, tell them about this, and then this, and then this, and this, so I know exactly where I am. I could give the whole talk backwards if, if for some strange reason. Thanks all for being here, you know, and then, and then go backwards. <laughs> but, but you know, that's, that's the power of these things. They really work that way. I need to sh shut down, but I'll give you one last cool story. Uh, years ago, uh, uh, a lady contacted me, said her 10-year-old son had this goal. He wanted to memorize the names of all the popes. This was when Benedict was still the pope, so we had 265, I believe, at the time. She said, can you help him do that? I said, well, maybe, I don't know, he's only 10 years old. But, uh, but I said, okay, do, do the 60 locations in the Memorize the Faith book. 
and then build rooms around your own house and stuff and, and, and go from there until you get as many as you need. Well, a few months later, I got this little unfamiliar voice on the phone. I said, Dr. Vost, I did it. He said, this is John Paul. I memorized all the popes. And he did. And here's how it was displayed. It was during a First Communion Mass. His pastor knew these techniques. And he said, he rattled off all of our US presidents. What are we on now, 45 or 6 or so? He, he rattled them off. And then he said, and everybody said, oh, wow. He goes, oh, wait, you ain't seen nothing yet. And then he invites little 10-year-old John Paul to come up. He faces the altar. His dad has one of those pope charts. You ever seen it? They have little medallions of all the popes. And John Paul starts, you know, Peter, and blah, 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 blah. He works his way through to Benedict. And he does all of them in order. And remember, some of these guys have names like Eusebius and Zosimos. And, and even for a name as simple as John, you got 23 of them, right? But he did it. You know, so it showed the power of this. And then uh, his family invited my wife and up to see him do this at a homeschool talent show. It was at a Franciscan conference. That was his act. <laughs> that was his act. But, but I learned later, part of the story was that his pastor had been a high school theology teacher. And he had an ongoing $100 challenge to his high school students. If anyone could memorize all the popes in order, they get 100 bucks, and nobody ever cashed in. <laughs> and he told the kids of the parish this. So John Paul decided he's going to cash in. And he did. And he did. <laughs> so there was some monetary motivation. But anyway, I'll just say these techniques, you know, they can be used for just about anything. They'll be easier to use for some people than for others. Most people should find them of some benefit. Sometimes people will say, though, yeah, but we don't want to just memorize things. We want to understand them down deep. But I couldn't agree more. These are kind of like a starting point. So like in my memory books, once I introduce a concept and we remember it, then, then we dig deeper, you know. But so they're a starting point there. I also do like to point out, too, some of the greatest endorsers, proponents of these techniques over the time includes Aristotle. He mentions him four times, who's the father of logic. Cicero, the most famous, famous of the ancient Romans. St. Albert the Great, the patron saint of scientists, and St. Thomas Aquinas, the patron saint of scholars. So, so deep thinkers have endorsed these methods. So if I can just conclude before the Q&A with one take-home thought, it would be this. Boy, I knew I should have written something down. Now, this is it. It is hard to think deeply about things that you cannot remember. So thank you very much. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to take them.